Job chapter 30. We got down to verse 21. We'll pick up with verse 22. And Job here is continuing his speech. And he's continuing uh, some of the sorrows that he has suffered. And he says in verse 22, Thou liftest me up to the wind, thou causest me to ride upon it, and dissolvest my substance. For I know that thou wilt bring me to death, and to the house appointed for all living. You know, Job had promised himself long life, and now he saw death at the door. And then in verse 23, uh, 24, he says, Howbeit he will not stretch out his hand to the grave, though they cry in his destruction. He felt like that God wouldn't cause his troubles to follow him to the grave. Certainly we know that they do not, because that ends all this life and its feelings. And we depart to be with Christ, which is far better. And as Randy preached uh, the other day at the funeral, those that are dead in Christ will the Lord bring with him, because they're departed to be with him. And he'll bring them back, and the dead in Christ shall rise. They'll be reunited to bodies, and God will breathe upon those dead bodies, and they'll take on a form and fashion of incorruptibility, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, both the living believers and the dead in Christ. And it says, Howbeit he will not stretch out his hand to the grave, though they cry in his destruction. That is, his sins or his problems, his troubles would not follow him to the grave. Verse 25, Did not I weep for him that was in trouble? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? When I looked for good, then evil came unto me, and when I waited for light, there came darkness. Uh, Job points out that his conscience had witnessed to him that in his prosperity he had not been un unsympathetic to the poor and to the needy and to those that were in misery. Sometimes when people get in prosperity, and Job was for a time, they lose sight of others that are not. And they lose sight of others that have misery and problems and troubles. We should never be that way. We ought to be able to rejoice with those that rejoice. And when they get good things happen to them, if it's prosperity, if it's money, if it's uh, security, whatever, we ought to be thankful that they have it. And then those that do not have it, we ought to be able to identify with them. And we ought to be like Paul when he says, I can become all things to all men. And furthermore, he said, I've learned whatsoever state I'm in, whether he's rich, well off, whether he was without. He says, therewith to be content. And we have to learn those things along life's way, too. He says, my bowels uh, boiled and rested not. That's verse 27. The days of affliction prevented me. I went mourning without the sun. I stood up and I cried in the congregation. He's speaking of all the uh, oppression, affliction that he endured in various uh, terms and language here. I'm a brother to dragons and a companion to owls. You know, the owls howling and complaining and the dragons. And then he says, My skin is black upon me and my bones are burned with heat. With uh, heat. He felt that his skin had turned dark through the, uh, the uh, rays of the sun, and my bones are burned with heat. My harp also has turned to mourning. Instead of an instrument of joy, it was an instrument of mourning. And my organ, an organ here is probably not an organ as we think of an instrument in the church, but probably a pipe or a flute or something of that nature, into the voice of them that weep. So all the instruments of joy were turned into mourning, to mourning instead of happiness. Chapter 31 Job continues, and in chapter 31, the sins from which he acquits himself are enumerated. He starts pointing out various things that 
uh, he could be guilty of, but he justifies himself and acquits himself of these sins. He says, if I'd done this, in fact, if you look time and again as we read through this uh, 31st chapter, if I have, or if my step, or if mine heart, or if I despise, it's if I. If he were, had done any of these things, he's claiming not guilt concerning them. He's acquitting himself of all the charges. He's bringing the charges upon himself, and then he's bringing the fact that he, he was not guilty of these things. And all through this chapter, you're going to find this, this uh, type of, of uh, language. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, let's read them. He says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above, and what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? He says, now God knows all about me. And in verse 1 he says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. In other words, he made an agreement. Why then should I look, uh, think upon a maid? He speaks of wantonness and uncleanness of heart. Due to lust or sensuality, those who would keep their hearts pure must guard their eyes. Brother, today we have plenty of eye guard to put up, don't we? We talk about uh, lust today. And we talk about uh, sensuality. And we see these women half-clothed on television. And certainly there's going to be more people in hell, men in hell, from the lust of women and from unclothed women than of anything else I know of because it seems that that's the order of the day. Less clothes they can have on, the more popular they seem to be. And if you tell me that a red-blooded man can look upon those people without being concerned about sensuality or lustfulness, you just tell me who he is. He's probably dead. He's probably not living and so uh, that's a, a, a bad thing. And so Job says this, why then should I think upon a maid? He says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Sinfulness, the very sinfulness of sin, it alienates the mind from God. And if we want to keep our hearts pure, we have to keep our, guard our eyes against evil. You know, no man ever looks upon sin and is the same. Have you ever looked at things that you, and maybe just of a, of a gross or uh, a, unpleasing nature uh, in, in the realm of, of physical and human things. I, I think of going up to the care center at times. And I used to go in there and uh, where they were eating. And there's all kinds of people in there. Some are elderly, can't help themselves. Others are being fed. But they had one guy in there. And when I came home, I couldn't eat for two or three days. I honestly couldn't eat because of the way things were being done. This poor guy, he was... He was uh, not just old or he was not just afflicted. He was, there was something wrong with him and he'd take his food and he hit every place in the world and the time he got through, he had it all over. When I got home, I told my wife, I says, you know, I can't go up there that much. And I'd go up to see people who used to preach up there. We had services up there for them at times. Uh, out in the regular uh, room where they have their arts and crafts and various things. But... You see, there's a lot of things, and those things stick with your mind. That may be temporary, but there are other things that you look upon that stay there. And at some time or another, they'll flash back. And I'm talking about just unpleasing, uh, gross things that you see. I used to see these movies they make on television where they'll throw up and all that kind of stuff. It just makes me sick. Why would they have to have that 
in some movie to make it appealing to anyone. I think it's the most gross and unbecoming thing to put into a film to try to represent anything. Why do people do things like that? And yet they do, because it seems like the more ugly and the more unpleasing that they can make anything appear, the, the, the more people look at it. And I don't want to see it myself. There's a lot of things I just soon I'd have never known about. When I went into the service here, I was 17 years old, joined the Navy in, 19, in the 40s during World War II. The Japanese were fighting us. And uh, by the time I got through boot camp, I found out things. I'd always been here. The furthest I'd ever been was Roswell and El Paso. I'd never even been to Albuquerque. And when I got out there and got to seeing some things that I saw go on, I was glad that I was raised without knowing all those things. And I wish now I'd have never had to know them. But uh, people say, well, I've got to experience everything and know everything. No, you don't. A lot of things are better off if you never know, never see. And your eye and your heart would be pure with these things. He says in verse 4, Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? He knew that God would see it all. Then in verses 4 through 8, he speaks of fraud and injustice in commerce. He says, If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know my integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out. He says, let it come back to my own family. If I've been unjust and fraudulent, I don't, I'll, I'll reap the, the, uh, the crop of it in my own family. And notice he says, if I. Verse 5, he starts out, if I have walked. Verse 7, if, if my step. And then in verse 8, he comes to the conclusion. Now in verse 9, he says, if mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door. In other words, he's speaking of adultery. Then let my wife grind unto another, and let others bow down upon her. For this is an heinous crime. Yea, it is iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction, and would root out all mine increase. He speaks of adultery in this passage of Scripture. If he lusts after his neighbor's wife, then he says, let my wife... Grind unto another. Grind in the, in the mill. And be in subjection to others, as was the custom of those that were in bondage. They not only were in bondage uh, as far as their labor was concerned, but they had to submit themselves to those that ruled over them. And he says in verse 11, For this is an heinous crime. Brother, I wonder if today all adultery was punished. We've got it on every hand, haven't we? It's on every hand. People even make light of it. You know, we have laws against adultery, against uh, uh, homosexuality, and then we make other laws to protect them. And they're actually breaking the laws. In most, in most places in our country, it's against the law. All of these things that they're trying to justify are against the law. Now we come down to verse 13. It says, If I despise the cause of, of my manservant or of my maidservant, when they contend with me. What then shall I do when God riseth up and when he visiteth? What shall I answer him? Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? In other words, he's talking about uh, having respect of persons as far as his servants are concerned. In other words, if he's been severe and uh, unjust toward his servants, if he would not hear their cause just because they're servants, 
He said that God would rise up in judgment and he would be the one that would do the judging. Verse uh, 16. And this carries us through verse 23. It's a whole passage concerning uh, unmercifulness to the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. And we'll just read and you can see that thought progressing through here. If I have withheld the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel myself alone and the fatherless hath not eaten thereof, he would, if he would not share what he had with, with the orphans. For from my youth he was brought up with me as a father, as with a father, and I have guided her from my mother's womb. If I have seen any perish, look, for want of clothing or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, if he were not warm with the fleece of my sheep, if I've lifted up my hand against the fatherless, that's the orphans again, when I saw my help in the gate, I had provision for them, then let mine arm fall uh, from my shoulder blade and mine arm be broken from the bone. For destruction from God was a terror to me and by reason of His highness I could not endure. In other words, if I've been unjust to those that are in need and unmerciful to them, then let me get what I deserve. And then the next next two verses, he speaks of uh, confidence in his worldly wealth. He says, If I have made gold my hope, I have said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence. If I rejoice because of my wealth was great and because my hand hath gotten much. Look at that. In those two verses, he's saying, if he put his confidence in worldly wealth, then he would deserve God to judge him as well. That's a very important verse. If I have made gold my hope. A lot of people have, haven't they? Or have said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence. A lot of people put all their trust in their wealth. We need to put all of our trust in God and He will supply our needs. That's the bottom line. All that we are and all that we have comes from God. And if we don't realize that, there will be a day that we will realize it. I've seen people, and I have too in their lifetime, that have had plenty and that die in poverty. And many times it's a disregard of God. A whole lot of times it is. George Eastman of Eastman Kodak, who still buy Kodak films, don't we? Wealthy, prosperous. And one night, went out and committed suicide. All of his dollars, all of his wealth didn't do him any good. They left it to his heirs, of course. But you find that wealth is not the answer to men's problems. Riches are not the answer to men's problems. The Lord is the answer to men's problems. And a little that a righteous man has is better than all the spread and all the wealth of the wicked. And so if we learn, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thankful if God has prospered us. We certainly should. If God has given you prosperity and blessings and security and things of that nature, as far humanly speaking is concerned, you ought to be thankful for it. But you ought to be wise enough to know that that's not all there is to life. And so we, we need to wake up to those facts. And so Job says, If I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because mine hand hath gotten much. And we'll get into another thought in just a moment. And if you remember Job's uh, situation, he was wealthy, wasn't he? Then all, wealthier than all the men of the East. He had great riches. And if you remember, uh, he lost it all in a moment's time. It's just one stroke after another. And in a day, it was gone. And the Bible tells us that riches take wings and fly away. And that's the way it does a lot of times. But still, we have the Lord. And I remember when I was going to seminary. Trying to raise a family, build a house, go to school, pay tuition, working day and night. And uh, for just, well, I was working for 
for wages. And I'd go out, and if I didn't find a job, I told my wife when, when I left, I said, you keep praying till I get back, and when I come back, I'll have a job. And I did, every time. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I knew God wanted me to work. I had to have a place to, I had to have money to eat on. I knew that. Some guy went out, and they tried to knock on, go to one contractor, and said, well, he didn't want anybody. Go back home and sit by the TV now, don't they? Well, listen, you better keep on trying. If you don't find it the first time, go to someone else. Somebody wants you to work. And uh, it's not obsolete, is it? So we find it if we'll just keep on. But God's blessings, and I find that the Lord saw me through there. People told me, you know, when we went down from the farm over in Oklahoma to Fort Worth to uh, go to school, and I didn't have anything when I, when I got there, and didn't have anything when I left, hardly, but anyway... When I got there, well, people, uh, the farmer, neighbor farmer says, he's going to take that wife and, and that baby down there to starve to death. And just, they almost got it right. So we really did have a time. But then the Lord opened up the way. And, and every weekend when I'd come back and preach in a little church in Oklahoma, I had a part-time pastor, to, well, a full-time pastor, but I uh, had to go to school too, so it was a full load both ways. But anyway, I'd come back and I'd sell a plow or or some kind of farm machinery. Finally, sold the tractor and I got rid of all of it. But each time we'd live on that. But the thing about it is, the Lord will see you through. It doesn't make any difference how hard situations become. If the Lord is with you, if God be for us, who can be against us? Okay, let's pick it up with verse 30. Let's see, we read verse 25. Now, verse 26. Verse 26 through 28. If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart had been secretly enticed. Now look. In other words, to be idolatrous as far as worshiping the sun. This is what he's speaking about, idolatry. Or my mouth hath kissed my hand. This also were iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. In other words, if I have turned to sun worship, or worshiping the elements and worshiping the things that God has made, then he said, I would have denied God. And you know, we have many people that worship the, the solar system, the heavens and various things. Someone says, have you read your, what do they call it today, horoscope? No, I haven't. And I'm not going to read it tomorrow, nor the next day. I'm going to leave that up to the Lord. If there's any good to come, he knows it's there. And if there's any bad to come, I don't want to know it till he gets there. I don't want to suffer for it twice, do you? Some people die a thousand deaths before they die. It's not necessary. Just wait till the time comes. And so we find that uh, uh, he says, I'm not going to be a sun worshiper. Now look at verse uh, 32. Well, let's see, did we get, we got verse uh, 28, 29, 29. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me or lifted up myself when evil uh, found him. Look at this. Verse 29 is what we're reading. When evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing uh, a curse to his soul. If the men of my tabernacle said not, oh, that we had his, his flesh, we sh cannot be satisfied. In other words, he's talking about here neglect of, of, uh, of or revenge, revenge upon those that he hated, that hated him. Look in verse 29. If I rejoice at the destruction of him that hated me in the whole tenor of these three verses have to do with that. In verse 32, he says, The stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveler. He's talking here about he did not neglect the poor strangers. If he had done that, God could judge him as well. In verse 33, he says, If I have covered my transgression as Adam by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom, 
Did I fear a great, a great multitude, or did the contempt of, of families terrify me that I kept silence and went not out of the door? He's talking, talking here about hypocrisy in concealing his own sins and cowardice in the covering of the sins of others, if there, even if there's a great multitude. Are we going to be hypocritical and try to cover our transgressions as Adam did? Remember, what did Adam do? He hid in the garden, didn't he? And he took the fig leaves. And he says, but open my doors to the traveler. Uh, I mean, uh, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom in verse 33. Could he hide it from God? He'd already said back down in verse uh, 4, Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? So there was no hiding place. Now then, pick up with verse uh, uh, 35, 35 through 37. And toward the close of this chapter, it he appeals to God's judgment concerning his, his integrity. And he says, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me and that mine adversary had written a book. He says, I'd rather God would answer me. And these adversaries, not only was he speaking of the things that had be, uh, befallen him, but he was speaking of the fact that his three friends had become his adversaries. And he says, If they have charges to make against me, let them write them down in a book and bring these charges in writing against me. Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. I would declare to him the number of my steps. As a prince would I go near unto him. He'd rather be left in God's hands than in the hands of his friends. Verse 38. Notice what it says here. Verses 38 through 40 we'll find that uh, oppression and violent invasion of others, other people's rights. He would not deal with that either. He says, If my land cry against me, or that the furrows likewise thereof complain, that is, if he had mistreated those that had been his hire, if I have eaten the fruits thereof without money, or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat, and cockle instead of barley. Cockle means noisome weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. He says, if I have been found guilty of all of these things, he protested his integrity, but he claimed that he had not been guilty of these things, but he puts the case before God and says, if I'm guilty of anything, any of these, let me suffer the consequences. That's more than most of us would do, isn't it? But we know that the only thing about Job and Elihu, and some say Elihu, it, uh, and Elihu, it's pronounced in various ways, but anyway, the next speaker in the 32nd chapter is going to bring out the fact that Job's uh, real problem was that he uh, protested and he uh, presented himself before God as so innocent. Now, he could present himself before man as one that was righteous, but when we stand in the face of God, it's a little different story, isn't it? And Elihu is going to get into this. I want you to notice in chapter 32, we have him coming on the scene. His name means God is he. And you know, Job needs a moderator. He says, oh, that I had a daysman that he might lay his hand upon God and myself, or betwixt us both, a mediator. Job was looking for someone to bring them together. And Elihu seems to be the man. He seems to be the man that can do this. And it says in verse uh, 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then it says, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. By the way, if you go back and you find the setting, you'll find it along in Genesis chapter 11, 12, along there, 13, time of Abraham. So you see that Job really needs to be placed back in Abraham's day. 
And it says, Of the kindred of Ram against Job with his wrath was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Now this is what provoked Elihu, is that Job justified himself rather than God. And that was at the bottom of Job's problem. Though he was not guilty of all that his friends had, had accused him of, he was guilty of a little bit of self-righteousness deep down and thinking himself a little bit too good. It's all right for you to be good, but don't be too good, especially in the sight of God. Be as good and as righteous as you can and as right as you can and as true as you can, but when you face God, don't claim that too much. Because God is holy, isn't he? He's holy. Now, we walk, we walk upright before our fellow man. And we try to walk before God and walk be, and please Him. But on the other hand, we cannot claim absolute sinlessness in the sight of a holy God. And that was Job's problem. He was just claiming to be a little bit better than he should have claimed in the sight of God. And notice what it says. It says in verse 3, Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled. His wrath was kindled against Job because he justified himself rather than God and against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet and yet had condemned Job. Now, if you're going to have if you're going to condemn a man, give him the answer and they hadn't had the answer. They didn't have the answer to his problem. So, Elihu was disturbed at all of them against God and against them. And well he should be. And we find now in verse 4 it says now Elihu wait, had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. He had respect to the elder. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then, uh, then his wrath was kindled. We're told about this man in verses 1 through 5. We see his parentage. It tells us where he came from. We see his purpose of this dispute that he was uh, trying to deal with Job as well as his three friends and his sentiments concerning it. In verses 6 through 10, we're going to see uh, him speaking again. And not the experience of the old men or the wisdom of the old men could be found, even though these were older than Elihu. And he had the understanding of a man that, that was led of the Spirit of God. And this, this makes it quite a bit different. So verse 6 says, And, and Elihu the son of Barkai, Barshel, rather, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young and you are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. He says, I just stood back. I just waited. And he says, I said, they should speak and the multitude of years should teach wisdom. It's not always the case. He said, they should speak. You know how people look to the elder for wisdom? Well, they should because it should be found there. But in not every case do you find it because some men never grow up and they never get wise and they still remain uh, as some of these did that uh, Elihu had watched, they said Job had a problem and they tried to deal with it, but they didn't have any answers for Job. All they had was accusations and condemnation. And he says, Job needs better than this. He does need to be brought to the right place to consider that he can't justify himself before God and justify himself rather than God is what he, the way he put it back in verse uh, uh, 2. But he says in verse uh, Eight. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. Look at that. In verse 8, he says there's a spirit in man. You know what he's talking about? There's a spirit that gives him the understanding. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. It's not the inspiration of the world that gives him understanding, but the inspiration of the Almighty. I want you to notice verse 9. 
Great men are not always wise. Boy, we could bring that home today, couldn't we? Right before the election. Great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore, I said, hearken to me and I will show mine opinion. He says, well, listen, if you fellas don't have the answer, just let me express my opinion. Sometimes that's pretty good. And then he says, therefore, I said, hearken to me. I will also show mine opinion. Verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons while she searched out what to say. Yea, I tended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or that answered his words. He's reproving his three friends for not having any answer for Job. In verse 13, lest you should say, we have found out wisdom, God thrusteth him down, not man. He thought, well, if they were going to come to this conclusion, that wouldn't be very good, would it? Verse 14, he had patiently, in these verses we've just read, we find that Elihu had patiently waited for all they had to say, and now it's his turn to say something. Beginning with verse 14. He says this, now, now he hath not directed his words against me, neither will I answer him with your speeches. He says, Job hasn't spoken directly to me, and I'm not going to uh, answer him with your speeches either. I'm not going to write down all you said and try to answer Job just like you have. I'm going to come up with something new, something that he needs to hear. They were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. They figured it's time to hush, didn't they? When I had waited for they when I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more, I said, I will answer also my part, I will also show mine opinion, much as what he's just said. He was showing them that he had something to offer. And then he says in verse 18 through 20, For I am full of matter, or words. The spirit within me constrained me. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. What is he saying here? He says, I'm just so full of words and I'm just so anxious to say what I need to say that I'm like a wine bottle without any vent. And he says, within my belly, inside of me, is just boiling over with something to say. Brother, he was in bad shape, wasn't he? Do you know it's harder for a preacher not to preach than it is to preach? It's really harder to try not to preach. That's why you've got to give preachers a chance to preach once in a while. That's why I give Randy at least every other week or something, a couple of times a month and so on and so forth, and teach back in the Sunday school because preachers have to preach. You tell me that a preacher that says he doesn't want to preach, well, probably he shouldn't ought to preach if he doesn't want to preach. And so this man, he says, I'm just full of words. If you notice verse uh, 18, I'm full of matter. In the, in the marginal reading of the Hebrew for matter here means words. The spirit within me constrained me, constraineth me. Behold, my belly is as wine that hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open the li- my lips and answer. And in verses 21 and 22, He's resolved in his heart to speak impartially. He's going to speak, not like these men did and condemn Job, but he's going to speak impartially. You know, it's pretty hard for a person to be impartial and to speak the truth, whether it's what people want to hear or not. A lot of times people say, well, Brother Joyce, do you believe this? No, I don't believe that. (laughs) You know, you have to tell them how you stand, what you stand for. There's so many different weird ideas going on especially in religion and in, uh, in the church and according to in, in the Bible, you know, people get crazy ideas. And it's a lack of studying. It's a lack of 
a spiritual enlightenment. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of willingness to prove it and find out what God's Word says. And when you study it out, you'll find that a lot of times what you first thought may not have been the bottom line. So, he goes on here, he says, let me, not, let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let me give flattering titles unto man, for I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my maker would soon take me away. He says, I can't be impartial in what I have to say. And he did speak so well that Job made no reply to hear him, and God gave him no rebuke. If you'll notice, he says in chapter 33, verse 1, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all, all my words. He says, Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth, my words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. He says, What I want to say, I want to say it clearly, that you may understand it. And the thing he was saying here to Job, if you'll notice, Job didn't come in and answer. He had answered He had answered. Uh, Zophar and Bildad and uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, if I can get it. Zophar and Bildad and I'll find it in a minute. And Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz. He had answered all these. Eliphaz. But he doesn't answer it. Elihim. He keeps silence because he says, this man may be telling me something I need to hear. Job didn't interrupt him very much. In fact, if you'll notice, the next several chapters deal with Elihim. Continuing uh, in verse 33, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches. Look at verse 34. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said. 35, Elihu spake moreover and said. He just goes on because he's really giving out some things that uh, Job needs to hear. So in verse uh, 4 of the 33rd chapter, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. When we think of this man, he was a man in God's Stead. We think of his character. He is a spirit-made man. He says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. He was not only made uh, and given life physically, but he was given a spiritual life. That tells us that we have to be born again. We have to have more than just the natural birth. He says, The Spirit of God made me, and the Spirit of, and the Spirit of the Almighty hath given me life. He was not talking about just fleshly life. Because he had a life now that whereby he could be... He was a spirit-inspired man as well as a spirit-made man. You know, we need to be realize that the dead in trespasses and sins need to be made alive. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath he quickened who were, what? Dead in trespasses and sins. It says we were by nature the children of wrath. It says wherein you walk... Uh, in times past, according to the uh, lust of your flesh, and he says, you walked in the ways of the world in times past, but he says, you were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so, by nature, we're dead in trespasses and sin. You know, there's this kind of a broad teaching that floats around in society, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. God made all men, and all of us have been given life by the Lord. But all men need a renewed life. And that's why Jesus said you must be born from above. You must be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot enter. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So this brotherhood of man, just thinking that all men are brothers and sisters. in the, We are in the human family, but not in the spiritual family. And that necessitates a spiritual living, a life given. If you turn to Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Let me read a verse of Scripture for you. And this is concerning the valley of dead bones and Israel, of course, 
valley of dry bones and the resurrection of such, but the same thing would apply true to you and I who are dead in trespasses and sins. It says in verse 9, Ezekiel 37, verse 9, and I wanted to say what I did first so you wouldn't think I was taking it out of context, but because it does apply to uh, Israel and how he will raise them up, the whole house that's uh, later on but th- in, in prophecy. But verse 9 says, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say unto the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And so God's breath of life has to breathe upon not only those that are dead in order for them to be resurrected, but for you and I who are dead in trespasses and sins, the breath of God has to come into our lives before we're spiritually alive. And you know, today this business of evangelizing and just making everybody that prays a sinner's prayer or anybody that you can get to say, that yes, I confess the Lord, that's, that's not real conversion, beloved. Because... Uh, It doesn't mean that some that pray the sinner's prayer are not saved. Many are because they pray it from the heart and they're born again. But it means that there must be that change of of heart and soul in life when they do repent of their sins. And it's not just a a mechanism. It's not just something you use as a way to, to do things. And you don't just get a guy here and say, now, look, you get on your knees and you pray the sinner's prayer and you're saved. Well, he may and he may not be. There have been men that have prayed the sinner's prayer and never were saved. There have been men that have never prayed it and are saved because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in their heart, they trusted the Lord as their Savior and they repented of their sins. And it's a heart matter. It's a spiritual matter. It has to do with a new birth. It has to do with God doing something with you and reaching deep down into your soul and making you a different person than you would have been without His saving grace. And to put it all into... Mechanism and say that's the way it works. And I remember I used to go out on visitation with one church there in Fort Worth. And I went out with a couple of brethren one night, and we went out and and uh, we got a couple of people to kneel down before their sofa, and and we just just told them exactly what they had to say, and just almost convinced them that I think they said they they did it so that we'd leave, you know, get out of the house. They was tired of fooling with us, so they finally did pray the sinner's prayer. We came back and told, uh, I think it's W.W. Baker, it was a pastor of church over on the north side. Maybe some of you have heard it. He's a good good preacher, real good preacher from the pulpit. But he said he quoted the scripture that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, he shall, if he shall truly call upon the name of the Lord. But you know, just this mechanism of it, does the Spirit of God has to do something in us in order to make us live. He says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. Stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. He says, Job, if you have some words to say, you stand up and speak. You tell me. But he says, uh, I am the man that you prayed for. I'm the one that... that uh, that you ask for a daysman. By the way, is our time gone? Yes, it is, and passed. I told you it was hard for preachers to stop, didn't I? Well, we'll pick up the Lord willing, chapter 33 and verse 5. When he tells Job, he says, If you can answer me, set thy words in order. Just get, get your game plan ready and, and start telling me what you have to, to say. And this is Elihu or Elihu speaking. So uh, we pick up in 33 and 